Well, there's an expectant hush, so I think we should start. Can everybody hear me, first of all, at the back? And can you hear me upstairs? Yes? Good. And I hope in a moment you'll be able to hear our speaker. A very warm welcome to everybody um, to this uh, International History Department annual lecture, annual guest lecture. In a moment I'll have the pleasure of welcoming us and introducing our speaker tonight. Before I do that, I just want to draw your attention to some of the other international history events, because we've got a good, strong programme of guest lectures and um, panel discussions taking place this term. Obviously, a good deal of it, this is not entirely by accident, is linked to the approaching centenary of the First World War. Um, So in addition to tonight's topic, um, we have on the Tuesday, 5th of February, Professor Dominic Levin, who will be talking about Russia and the First World War, Time to Think Again. That will be very much a compliment to tonight's presentation. Uh, We have another First World War-related subject, which is our annual Austrian History Lecture, which is on Wednesday, the 20th of February, when Dr. Werner Telesco will be talking about Habsburg imperial symbolism and regional identities in the visual arts in the 19th and 20th centuries. So that's more of a kind of cultural approach to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Then on a different line, um, the department is contributing to the LSE's Literary Festival with a a panel discussion on the Friday the 1st of March, uh, The Life and Work of Denis Diderot, one of the 18th century leading French philosophes. So we've got a good deal coming up, exciting programme of events, details of all of that on the department's website or you can go to the LSE events. I'd like to mention that before I get to the serious business. Um, Great pleasure to welcome Chris Clark. Uh, We've been running our annual departmental international history lecture for about 10 years now, and at the beginning of each academic year we have a discussion amongst the departments about um, who who we should invite, and sometimes these discussions are very acrimonious, of course, because um, we often have things that we like to look to to argue about. Uh, But actually this year there was a unanimous and immediate consensus that the person we should introduce and welcome this evening was Christopher Clark. So we're very delighted that he's been able to come and accept our invitation. Just a few words of background. Um, Chris is Professor of Modern European History at the University of Cambridge uh, and a Fellow of St. Catherine's College. Um, He's essentially began working as a German historian, working on uh, early modern and modern Germany, and has broadened out to look at Europe more generally, Um, His first book, uh, which came out back in, tell me the date, Chris, is it 1995? The Politics of Conversion, (laughs) Missionary Protestantism and the Jews in Prussia, 1728 to 1947. So he began with some interest in religious history and cultural history, which has continued. He remains interested in the 19th century. He started to publish more recently on the revolutions of 1848, I think maybe another area which he's moving into. But having started with that religious and cultural background, he then did an extremely useful biography, I think, of Kaiser Wilhelm II, which I thought is a model biography of an extremely controversial figure, which came out in the year 2000. Having looked at that, at one um, figure, one very controversial figure, he then did a much more wide-ranging book, Iron Kingdom, The Rise and Downfall of Prussia, 1600 to 1947, which won the Wolfson Prize for History and achieved ex- it was extremely well reviewed and I think is a gripping and s- sweeping piece of work. Um, and his most recent book, the, the Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914, 
came out in 2012 with Alan Lane, Penguin, and that's the book which is going to form the subject of his work tonight, so his presentation tonight. So starting off then, as a German historian, he probably won't be pleased if I mention that he was actually awarded an officer's cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Germany. Um, that gives an indi- by the German ambassador, I think, in 2010. So that gives an indication of the extremely high esteem with which he's held in Germany as well as in Britain. So someone then is very well qualified to give a new view. And I think this is what he's managed to do with his book on the sleepwalkers, a copy of which I brought with me and which I strongly recommend. This is the most important book to appear on the July crisis of 1914 for several years. And it contains within it a number of extremely important new interpretive developments and a great deal of original research. So he's managed to shed new light, both new information and new interpretation, on a topic that we thought was completely exhausted and has been tremendously thoroughly investigated for decades. So he's going to give us tonight uh, a presentation based on that book, The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914, a new look, then, at the July crisis and the outbreak of the First World War. Well, I'd like to begin by, by thanking David Stevenson for those extremely generous uh, and kind words of introduction, and also by thanking him and the, and the Department of International History here at the LSE for this invitation to, to come and speak to you this evening. And I'd also like to thank all of you for, for braving this extremely unpleasant weather um, tonight. Uh, I woke up this morning with a horrible, one of those horrible feverish colds, and I did briefly play with the idea of, uh, of going back to bed, but I'm very glad that I didn't uh, and that we're all here together. <clears throat> I wanted to begin by reminding you of something that Um, that you already know, everybody in this room will already know, namely that on the morning of the 28th of June 1914, when Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir apparent to the Austrian throne, and his wife, Sophie Hotek, arrived um, at the railway station at Sarajevo, Europe was at peace. 37 days later, it was at war. And the war that unfolded from that crisis of the summer of 1914 has, I think, with justice been described by German historians as the Urkatastrophe, the original catastrophe of the 20th century. It's the catastrophe that disfigured this century before it was 20 years old. It consumed three empires, or four, if you include the Ottoman Empire. It accounted for at least 10 million military deaths. Um, there are no good global estimates of, of casualties for the First World War, but, um, and we know even less about the total number of wounded, though it's thought that, that the total number of wounded runs to something between 15 and 21 million. Uh, and, of course, many of those wounds were what we would now describe as life-changing mutilations. Um, it was, I think, we can, uh, we can support or we can agree with Fritz Stern, the, the American or the, the German emigre historian in the United States. It was, uh, it was the disaster from which all the disasters of the 20th century sprang. It's very hard to imagine, without this war taking place between 1914 and 18, it's very hard to imagine the rise of Italian fascism. It's difficult to imagine the October Revolution. It's, it's easy to imagine something like the February Revolution taking place, but harder to imagine the October Revolution without the extraordinary strains and stresses of this conflict. And, of course, 
Uh, very difficult to imagine the rise of Nazism, the Holocaust, and these other horrors of the 20th century. And my former colleague at Cambridge, Adam Toos, now at Yale, uh, is currently working on a book which, which will focus on 1917 as a moment of unhinging of the international system, uh, a sort of disinhibition and reframing of politics with um, appallingly uh, negative consequences. So the question of how all this came about has an intrinsic interest. I'm not the first to have noticed that. Um, this is not a new debate, as David hinted. Uh, it's a debate in which virtually everything has been said. Every conceivable opinion has been voiced, uh, it seems to me. Uh, it's a debate that's been running since the July crisis itself. And indeed, the, the, the debate over the origins of the First World War began, I, I, I would emphasize, before the war itself, um, during the July crisis. And it's uh, around this, the, this debate and the questions that it's given rise to have acu has accumulated a corpus according to John Langdon's The Long Debate, a study of the, of, the, of the debate on the origins of the First World War that came out in 1991, some time ago in other words. According to Langdon, well he counted at least 25,000 books and articles in English on this subject. Uh, and so when one thinks, for example, of Rebecca West, the, the author and novelist uh, who wrote one of the deepest uh, reflections on the place of the Balkans in the origins of the First World War, um, her black lamb, Grey Falcon, uh, in 1937 when she visited Sarajevo to be at the scene where these things had happened, she went to the, the town hall, she stood on the balcony there with her husband, the balcony from which the Archduke had looked out over the city before he went back to his car and drove off uh, to, his, to, his, to his death a few minutes later. Um, she stood on the balcony, she turned to her husband and she said, you know, I shall never understand how it all happened. It's not that we know too little, it's that we know too much. Now that was in 1937 and of course we know a great deal more now. So the question then arises, why add yet another book to this already uh, staggering pile? This is a question which was repeatedly posed to me by colleagues. Uh, colleagues are very good at this. Um, I was constantly being asked, you know, surely this has been done to death. I mean, why are you wasting your time on this? Uh, and so on and so forth. <coughs> and the answer is, it seems to me, one does need to have an answer to this question. The answer is that although the debate is old, the subject is still fresh. Indeed, in some respects, um, it's fresher than it was 20 or 30 years ago when I studied it at school. In the 1970s and 80s, a, a kind of patina of period charm accumulated around the events of 1914. You think about the magnificent narrative treatments of Barbara Tuckman, for example, um, which dwelt at great length and in great detail, beautifully written, on uniforms, on, on uh, Lord, Lord uh, Salisbury riding to the House of Commons on a tricycle, being pushed by his butler, James, uh, and saying, James, let go, let go, push, push, and, and he'd roll down with his coattails, flattering, uh, and so on. On the ornamentalism, to borrow David Canadine's term, the ornamentalism of that, of that vanished world. And when one thought about 1914 in that way, the assumption stealthily asserted itself that if these people had garish green ostrich feathers on their helmets, as indeed the Archduke did when he was shot in Sarajevo, then they must have had garish green ostrich feathers on their thoughts and feelings as well. In other words, they must have been people of a bygone age, bygone people, yesterday's people. And yet... Even a very cursory look at the events of 1914 is enough to remind at least a, a, a 21st century viewer from a 21st century contemporary perspective uh, of the raw modernity of the events which brought this war about. 
Think of the fact, for example, that it begins with a cavalcade of automobiles. I mean, um, one can't help being reminded, if that's the right word, of Dallas. There's a squad of suicide bombers. Now, um, when, when I was studying this at school, this, the, the, the idea of these, these young men with their, with their paper twists full of cyanide powder, um, they seemed totally exotic figures, which I really couldn't, one couldn't really make any sense. But the suicide bomber is now, for obvious reasons, a much more familiar figure in our political landscape. Um, and they were suicide bombers in a very specific sense. I mean, they were instructed to take their own lives after, um, after uh, doing the deed, and indeed the two of them who found the, the courage to, to throw a bomb in the case of Chabrinovich and to, and to fire the, uh, the, his gun in the case of Gavril, Gavrila Princip, um, those two did actually attempt to take their own lives, but they were prevented from doing so. And there were underground networks, an underground secret network um, that harbored a cult of death, sacrifice, and revenge, self-sacrifice. I want to burn like a candle for my people, um, Chabrinovich said when he was caught by the Austrian police. Um, these are, it seems to me, no longer seem quite such bygone features of the crisis of 1914 as they once did. And our compass, our perspective on these issues has shifted in other ways as well. There's the fact that the Yugoslav wars of, 19, of the 1990s have reminded us of the lethality, potentially at least, of Balkan nationalism, the potential for conflict there, sharpening our awareness of the kinds of threats that might have been seen to emanate from the Balkan Peninsula, at least from the perspective of Vienna, the capital city of the, um, of the vulnerable and fragile uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. There's the fact that um, the somewhat ailing European, from the perspective of the somewhat ailing European Union of our own time, Austria-Hungary looks less garishly obsolete than it did, uh, than it once did. And there's the fact that <clears throat> the events of 9-11, the attack on the, on the Twin Towers, have reminded us of the power of a single event, the power of a terrorist event, deliberately charged, freighted with symbolic meaning, to, to transform the chemistry of politics, to make a difference. Then there's the fact that we are departing, if you like, from the era of, or moving out of the era of bipolar stability that was the, a feature of the Cold War, into a world that is much more like the world of 1914. In a curious paradoxical way, 1914 is getting closer to us rather than, even as it recedes further and further into the past. Uh, we're now in a world of rising powers, um, but also of declining empires, or at least empires that are troubled by the by the, um, this, the premonition that they may be in decline. So in other words, for these and other reasons, 1914 speaks more freshly to us now than it did a couple of decades ago. And these shifts in perspective prompt us to rethink the story of how war came to Europe. As accepting this challenge does not mean, emphatically does not mean embracing a vulgar presentism that remakes the past to meet the needs of the present. Rather, it involves acknowledging those features of the past of which our changed vantage point can afford us a clearer view. And I want to make a distinction there between um, a kind of presentist history which uh, simply wants to retool the past for contemporary objectives and one which recognizes that as our present perspective shifts, so does, um, so does the map, if you like, of what we can see and what we can apprehend about the past, what we can understand. Bearing all of this in mind, <clears throat> the question then arises, how does one go about refreshing the narrative, especially a narrative where there are so many distinguished predecessors? How do you go about developing a distinctive approach to a question like this one? And my own efforts to do that, it seems to me, fall into four categories, and I want to say a few words about each in turn. 
The first thing I tried to do was to ask a slightly different question. So the, the literature on the outbreak of the first world, of the outbreak of the first on the outbreak of the First World War is, is commonly known as the origins literature, literature on the origins of the First World War. And the question that's widely asked is why did this war come about? I wanted rather to ask the question, how did the war come about? Now clearly questions about why and questions about how are not ultimately entirely to be disentangled from each other. They're, they're logically interlinked. But nevertheless, when we ask why and when we are, if, if we ask why and if we ask how, these two questions lead us in slightly different directions. When we ask why, we're drawn automatically towards remote causes, <clears throat> towards categorical causes. There's a tendency to trawl the, the prehistory of the war looking for features of the pre-war environment that might account for the outbreak of, um, of, the, of the conflict. And what results as you start piling up you know, armaments, nationalism, imperialism, and so on, uh, what, 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 what comes about is a kind of piling up effect. The causes are piled onto the scale. The tongue of the scale gradually moves from probability to almost certainty to inevitability. And there's a tendency, uh, there's an illusion of steadily building causal pressure. The idea is that you know, the world is like, Europe is like a, a powder keg, is a widely used, um, widely used metaphor, uh, or it's like a volcano where the power, the, the, the sort of, the power of, the, of the lava, subterranean lava is building and building, and, and a, an outbreak at some point is uh, inevitable. And yet some of the most recent, well, some of the most interesting recent writing about the war has precisely questioned its inevitability. And I'm thinking in particular of a book edited by Holger Afflerbach and David Stevenson, here, um, on, uh, called The Improbable War, or An Improbable War, question mark, which precisely questions whether this war was steadily becoming steadily more and more likely and then uh, inevitable, and opens up the possibility that in some respects this war was becoming less likely before it became more likely, if you see what I mean. Uh, and then there are studies by other historians, I'm thinking in particular of Friedrich Kiesling, who's argued that the detente that one observes in the European system before 1914 was not just a sort of false dawn, um, but re represented a genuine potential in the international system. In other words, this was still a system that could produce, that had the mechanisms to produce prolonged periods of detente. And William Mulligan's study of the outbreak of the First World War, his, his book on the origins of the First World War, likewise stresses um, the, the non-inevitability of this war, arguing that the alliance structures that emerged before 1914, far from pushing the, 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 the members of the respective alliances into war, actually had a restraining effect on their respective uh, member states. So that's one point about what happens when you uh, ask why questions. But there's another one too. There's a, a, in a Bulgarian history of the Balkan Wars, uh, the author makes an interesting point. He, he, he comments that the question, when, when we ask the question why, or what, I'm quoting, once we pose the question why, guilt becomes the focal point. We ask why, what, what we often mean is who. Why did the war start? Who started the war? Who done it? And we wind up entering into what, what is often being called the blame game. A blame-based approach obliges us, as it were, to, to draw up a charge sheet or to exonerate each of the players in this, in this crisis. We're always looking to identify a suspect. By contrast, the how approach maps a journey through the events that aims to, to identify the decisions that brought war about. This does not mean excluding questions of responsibility. 
uh, because in the end they have to be posed and they have to be answered as much, uh, to the extent that one can. But uh, it means allowing the, the, the answers to the why questions to emerge from the answers to the how questions rather than the other way around. Rather than deciding, well, we know who's guilty, let's put together a charge sheet, let's, um, as it were, make a case for that, and then, um, and then you know, allow our account of the events to follow out of our, inter our intimations about who is responsible. If you ask the question how, you end up with a somewhat different picture. Okay, so that was the first way in which I tried to reframe the problem by, 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 by pushing in the direction of how rather than why. The second way in which I tried to refresh the narrative is, and this is a very banal observation, like everybody else who ventures into a densely populated historiographical terrain, and there can, I think, be few, fewer areas which are more densely populated with uh, serious books, I aimed to capture trends within the literature, um, both within the, new, within the newer studies of the, of the outbreak of the war and from the older studies, especially from underappreciated older works, which had seemed to me uh, offered points and arguments that could, have, could be fruitfully joined up within, with the intuitions in the newer literature to produce new causal uh, sequences, new lines of sight, if you like. Let me give a couple of examples. There's been a lot of very interesting recent writing on British foreign policy, which has questioned whether the German threat was really as central to British foreign political decision-making as has generally been assumed. You think of Andreas Rose's um, work on the naval scares before 1914, um, on um, Keith Wilson's and Keith Nielsen's study um, of the same questions, um, or <coughs> of Thomas Otte's extremely interesting uh, magisterial study, The Foreign Office Mind, which uh, focuses on the, the, the curious irresolution in British foreign policy, thinking in particular the persistence of concern about Russia, deep anxieties about how long the Russians would continue to abide by the rather loose uh, agreement reached in 1907, the, the Anglo-Russian Convention. And there are connections one can draw between this more recent writing and Zara Steiner's classic study um, of the British Foreign Office and British Foreign Policy before 1914, which is interesting because Zara, Zara Steiner wrote this book before the Fisher thesis. And for that reason, in some ways, her book speaks in very interesting ways to the post-Fisher literature that we're now seeing emerge. As the, as the, as the sort of shadow of Fisher shifts or, or lightens somewhat, um, the connections can be seen between the, the kinds of arguments that were being made before Fritz Fisher's thesis entered the scene and those that are being made in more recent, um, in more recent publications. And once one looks at the Entente in this way and ceases to think of it as the inevitable consequence of um, a specifically German challenge to the international order, um, it comes to appear less as the fruit of an exclusively continental power politics and more as the European consequence of world historical transitions. So in other words, there's also been a kind of global turn in readings of the, of the crisis before 1914, of the pre-war pre pre international system. And you think of Thomas Otte's work on the China question, for example. He shows how important um, disputes between, in particular, disputes between Russia and Britain, tensions between Russia and Britain in China were, um, especially around the turn of the century, and their impact on British foreign policy. On, or one thinks of Wilson and Weizmann, for example, their arguments about it's how the French and the Russians come together, not primarily, at least certainly not in the case of the Russians, because they're anxious about German, um, German objectives or German foreign policy, but rather because, this is particularly true of St. Petersburg, because St. Petersburg is afraid that Britain is about to join the Triple Alliance. 
This is in, eight, in the early 1890s. So in other words, it's a much more complex, much more multivectoral, multipolar world than we think. It's not all about Berlin. And it becomes clear that the Triple Entente was not a necessary and not a permanent feature, but rather a contingent and temporary response to um, the pressures uh, generated within the international system before 1914. And one of the most interesting, one of a particularly interesting intuition uh, that comes up in the, co- in co- the context of Otti's work um, concerns the, the continuing tension between Britain and Russia, um, which in 1913 to 14 seemed to imperil the future of the Anglo-Russian Convention. In fact, you find a lot of people in London, this is what Otto shows, um, who, who have their doubts as to whether the Anglo-Russian Convention is going to survive for the, next, uh, for the next year. And you hear people saying things like, for example, look, we'll wait till this Balkan crisis dies down, then we have to talk Turkey to the Russians, then we will refuse to renew the Convention, and we'll get tough on the issue of Central Asia, um, the northern Indian frontier, and so on. And you can reframe the two Moroccan crises by connecting the insights generated um, in the older and the newer literature. Uh, one book that I found particularly in, in, insightful was that of Christopher Andrew. Christopher Andrew's study uh, on, the, on the French foreign minister, Delcassé. Um, what Christopher Andrew effectively showed was that Delcassé, this is before he became a historian of intelligence, um, he was then a historian of French foreign policy, and um, it's, a, it, it's a very, very interesting book, and he shows that Delcassé initially... Um, hoped to work with the Germans against Britain. In other words, the Delcasse came into office with a very strong uh, anti- or the anglophobe um, impetus, and that it was only after his attempt to bring the Germans on side failed, and there's a very interesting discussion in Andrew's book about how furious Delcasse is when the French say, well, do you want to work together against uh, Britain? It's the, the, they're, they're stuck in, in its war in South Africa. Now seems the moment to do this. And um, the, the, the Germans reply, well, um, yes, we're, we'd be happy to consider working with France um, in this way. However, we must ask that you know, France, uh, first of all, sign um, a document confirming all the, political, the current political boundaries in Europe. And this is effectively a, a request that Paris should ratify the loss of Alsace-Lorraine. At this point, Delcassé flies into a total rage and announces that he is never going to do business with the Germans again, and indeed he does not. Uh, and it's on the basis of that kind of turn in Delcassé's policy, which um, Andrew analyzes in great detail, that uh, he decides to give the, the, German, the, the French uh, maneuvers in Morocco in 1905 um, a pointedly anti-German spin. The Germans are the only state, the only power, who are not consulted on France's plans in Morocco and who were not offered um, any, kind of, um, any kind of compensation for France's, what France intends, intends to do. And then there's Jean-Claude Alain's magnificent account, a really an underappreciated masterpiece, uh, is a magnificent account of the Agadir crisis of 1911, um, very critical of French policy in that period, um, French handling of the crisis. And you can connect what he said with points that are made in, in uh, various parts of, of works by Keith Wilson, David Stevenson, both of whom have analyzed the same episode, and with Ralph Forsbach's authoritative recent reappraisal of Kidal Wächter, the, German, the then German foreign secretary uh, who was handling the Berlin end of the, uh, of the Moroccan policy. And so, in other words, when you connect these works and uh, these intuitions in this way, a new picture begins to emerge. Um, it's a bit more complex, 
uh, with a somewhat more complex balance of initiative. It's not just one state that's rattling at the cage of the international system. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's much more complex than that, much more multivectoral. A third way in which I tried to you know, refresh this narrative is to develop new patterns of emphasis. So, for example, um, <coughs> excuse me, one thing that I became very interested in uh, as I prepared this book were the structures that gave rise to, the structures, as it were, that produced foreign policy in all of the European executives during this period. And it seemed to me that these structures were so fraught with adversarial tensions, with the struggle to exercise control over the making of policy, that it was sometimes not entirely clear whether one could speak of policy, whether, whether, whether policy might not be a misleading concept in, these, in this setting. So, for example, if one asks the question, did Russia at any particular point between, say, 1904 and 1914 have a Balkan policy, then um, it's not at all clear that Russia as such did. What you had was a, a, a polyvocality of a most extraordinary, to a most extraordinary extent. Many different policies competing, clamoring for attention. If one were to ask, looking at the, at the Russian executive before 1914, if one were to ask the question, who actually controls foreign policy in Russia? Uh, if one were to ask that question in 1904, then most people would have told you it's the Tsar and some people around him, a sort of entourage, um, a bunch of favorites. Um, but then if you ask the same question in 1906, after the Tsar's foreign policy has produced the disaster of the Russo-Japanese War, then the answer most people would have given was, well, the Tsar has now been pushed out of the picture. We're not hearing from him anymore. Now it's Stalipin, United Government. Um, the, the executive structure has sort of solidified around this powerful um, sort of prime minister-like figure, um, the strong man of the system. But then if we ask the same question in 1908, then it's clear that the foreign minister, Izvolsky, has broken free of his colleagues and is, uh, and is working with the Tsar to set up, a, uh, to, to run this policy in Bosnia, the Bosnian annexation policy, um, by which the Russians hope to swap the an Austrian annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina for um, Austrian support over Russian claims to, the, to, to, to better uh, incre improved access to the Turkish Straits. So there it's Izvolsky, the foreign minister. But if we ask the same question, a bit later in 1910, then Izvolsky's disappeared from the scene, now it's Tlipin, and so on. So in other words, there's a constant, there's a sense in which power is always in flux in these systems. It's always migrating from one node in the system to another. And if this is the case in France, it's even more the case in, in uh, Russia, I'm sorry, it's even more the case in France, where you have a constant guerrilla warfare between the central, the permanent functionaries of the Quai d'Orsay, who are extremely powerful, much more powerful than the foreign ministers. French foreign ministers did not tend to be very, um, to, to be very influential. Um, I can give you an, a, a, statistical, a, statistical, a statistical sense of why that's the case, simply by reminding you that during the tenure in office of Edward Grey, 16 French um, foreign ministers came and went, and two of them came and went twice. So in other words, you have a, a system where the, the, the central um, struggles to, or doesn't have to struggle very much, but tries to, um, to muzzle the foreign minister, who's often a bit of an irrelevance. Then there's the, the prime minister, who's also, um, who also has to struggle to make his, his uh, influence felt. Um, there's the president, a relatively unimportant person, until um, Raymond Poincaré takes over that office in 1913. Uh, in other words, in France, too, you see this constant flux between different nodes in the system, and it's very difficult at any given time to say with any certainty where exactly power and influence over the policy-making process uh, are, em are emanating from. And what this meant, that, what, this, this hive-like polyvocal structure, 
of the foreign policy-making institutions, and we see the same thing in Austria-Hungary. In fact, in Austria-Hungary, really, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's an extraordinarily chaotic setup where all sorts of people from pr relatively peripheral uh, locations in the apparatus can produce memoranda and foreign policy documents which will go straight to the top and may um, wind up framing, framing policy. So, and the result of all this, this, this power flux in all of these systems is... Um, a very high level of opacity and a very high level of unpredictability. And as I say, it's, it, it's against that background, it becomes um, questionable whether we can really speak of policy um, in, in any unitary sense. And of course, this indeterminacy not only fed distrust, anxiety, paranoia, though you can imagine that, that it, it certainly did, and by, incidentally, this distrust and paranoia and the, the opacity applied just as much to um, the, the, the relations between the states in, with uh, of specific alliance blocks as it did to relations between the states of opposing alliances. Um, this indeterminacy could also generate, on occasion, a radicalizing dynamic. And a very good example of that is the Agadir crisis of 1911, um, where it's really not possible to say that the Agadir crisis is caused by French foreign policy as such. It's caused by a small group, a small coterie of officials in the Centrale who decide to break with the agreements made with Germany in the pre previous year of Morocco and to, to press for a more forward policy. Um, Kidan Vechta responds with a kind of match, you know, machismo style um, game of chicken where he mirrors every French move with a counter provocation uh, and so on. So this is, as it were, not generated by, it's, it's not generated by the, the, the foreign office as such. It's generated by particular groups within, or individuals within the two structures. Another way, way in which one, should, one can refresh the narrative is one can highlight aspects of the process, aspects of the pre-war crisis um, that have been underexposed or underemphasized uh, in the literature. And one that struck me as particularly interesting and important was the Italian attack on Libya in 1911. Uh, it, it was an almost surreal experience to be writing about the, this, this war, which is incidentally the first, the, the, the Italian-Libyan war was the first war to make use of aerial reconnaissance planes, and also the first war to see aerial bombardments, both from planes, though um, aerial bombardments from planes were not particularly effective uh, in 1911. It involved, I mean, each plane could only take a few bombs, and you had to prime the bomb by hand, the pilot had to prime the bomb by hand, and then aim it by hand while steering the machine uh, at the troops below. So that was not a particularly um, effective method of, of, um, of deploying those bombardments, but dirigibles were highly effective. They had racks which could carry up to 200 of these bombs, and um, from them showered um, early aerial munitions, sowing terror among the Turco-Arabic troops, as they were called at that time, um, below. And of course, all the names, all the names, uh, you know, light up in that conflict, which lit up again exactly 100 years later in 2011 uh, during the Libyan intervention of that um, of that year. Why is the Italian attack on Libya important? Well, Libya was um, an integral vilayet; it was an integral province of the, of the Ottoman Empire. Um, there seems little doubt that it, that the attack on Libya triggered, if you like, started the kind of helter-skelter sequence of um, opportunist assaults on the Ottoman, um, on the Ottoman patrimony that um, sent the Balkans into the sort of you know, chaos and violence of the two Balkan wars. The one commentator who, who knew whereof he spoke, um, Milorad Spilajkovic, the, the um, 
the Serbian, sometime Serbian head of the political department of the Serbian Foreign Office, and later Serbian ambassador in, in, um, in uh, St. Petersburg, an extremely well-informed man. Um, he later commented uh, in a conversation with a French Parisian journalist after the, after the war, he said the, the, the Italian attack on Libya, c'était la première agression. That was the first aggression from which all the subsequent Balkan aggressions followed. So it seemed to me that that was a feature of the pre-war story that had been um, un under-emphasized. Um, Another was the extension. I mean, I certainly wasn't the first to notice this, but the extension and the transformation of the remit of the Franco-Russian alliance, the balkanization of the Franco-Russian alliance um, between 1912 and 1914, the growing readiness of the French to accept um, the premise that the Russians might be obliged to, in to intervene in some kind of Balkan controversy, and that the French would, under those circumstances, um, fulfill their alliance objectives, even if Russia itself were, were not under attack from another, or not threatened um, with attack by another great power. Excuse me. <coughs> and that was an extremely important development, because before 1912, the, the, the general line um, taken by the French on the Balkans had been, you know, don't expect us to risk our arms for the Balkans. France does not recognize a vital interest in the Balkan Peninsula. Um, we do not recognize that we have a vital interest. We don't even recognize that Russia has a vital interest in the Balkans. So don't expect us to take part. And, of course, the Russians had, um, had given a quid pro quo by reminding the French that they should not expect Russia to intervene in Morocco. They said, you know, we certainly would never risk our arm in Morocco. And using the same language, they said, you know, we, would, we do not see a vital interest for France or for Russia uh, in Morocco. So there's this tendency for both, both parties to say, you know, don't, don't count on us. Um, but that changes in 1912, and that's an extremely important development, and it's closely associated with another feature of the pre-war scene that I, I thought was very important and gave a lot of space to, and that is the, uh, the ascendancy of what I call the Balkan inception scenario. In other words, the, it was a scenario in the sense that, that it was a, a kind of speculative narrative. A conflict may break out in the, in the Balkans. It's not clear how it will break out, um, it would probably be between Austria and Serbia. Um, one doesn't know who will provoke this conflict, who will be responsible for it, but a conflict of some kind will break out. Uh, and under those circumstances, uh, the Russians may feel obliged to intervene, even if they are not under attack uh, or they're not threatened with attack. And uh, if they do that, France declares itself ready to... Um, France will have to pile in or France agrees to pile in. Even Sir Edward Grey buys into this um, Balkan inception scenario in December 1912, where he warns the Germans, but also informs Cambon, the French ambassador in London, that he, runs, he, takes, he takes him exactly through this sequence of events. He says there will be a quarrel in the Balkans. We don't know uh, who will start it. Um, but in those under, if that happens, then obviously France's involvement is, um, is inevitable, and we, won't, we don't question that. And if France piles in, then Germany will have to support Austria. And if that happens, Britain will fight on the side of France and Russia. So in other words, there's a growing tendency to, uh, to imagine uh, a future war that will break out in the Balkans. This is not a plan. It's not a policy. There is no linear uh, causal sequence that leads from this scenario to the events of the summer of 1914. It's rather the other way around, that when the crisis of 1914 broke out, the, the, the crisis um, precipitated by the assassinations, it was a scenario then which was post hoc used to frame possible the, the response, as it were, at least of the, of the Entente powers. And another 
another point that I gave somewhat more emphasis to was the impact of the assassinations in Austria-Hungary. And it seemed to me that one had to stress the shock effect of these assassinations because in a lot of the literature, the extraordinary claim is made that, um, that the, the Sarajevo assassinations were a matter of indifference to the Austrians. Um, Franz Ferdinand, it's often pointed out, was not popular. He was not well loved. So his death was a matter of um, relative, uh, there was no particular, was, people didn't fall to their knees weeping. It, he wasn't JFK. Um, and <clears throat> so that the assassinations could be read not as a cause of any Austrian uh, subsequent actions, but rather as a pretext. The language of pretext is found everywhere uh, in the literature around the assassinations. That seemed to me entirely wrong. Everything that I, that I um, could find out about how the Austrians responded to this assassination suggested that, as indeed you know, one must, uh, I mean, this is hardly surprising, that they regarded the, um, the, assault, the, the assassinations as a direct assault on what was often called the Habsburg state idea, that the political elite immediately went into a kind of groupthink um, centered around the notion that um, really all non-military options had exhausted themselves and one must seek, um, one must issue Serbia with an ultimatum uh, in, a hope, in the hope that Serbia would not comply um, would not agree and, um, and that other diplomatic options were now uh, had to be laid aside and become irrelevant and finally it seemed to me important excuse me sorry and finally it seemed to me important to give due space to the place of personality in these, in these developments I mean the key decisions are all made by individuals and small groups of individuals and one of the interesting features of the crises, the pre-war crises, is that they involved people who knew each other very well or who gradually came to know each other very well, not necessarily in a face-to-face -face way, but through dispatches and reports and so on. They were used to each other's presence in the system. And there are a lot of people who'd been interacting in one way or another for years. If you think, for example, of the relationship between Forgach, the senior, one of the sort of Vienna um, Modjars, one of the Vienna Hungarians, uh, in, in, you know, a very hot Serbophobe, and, and, and Miroslav Spalajkovic, the Serbian head of the political department of the Serbian foreign ministry, and later the St. Petersburg envoy. Um, Spalajkovic and Forgac absolutely loathed each other. I mean, they knew each other quite well. They absolutely hated each other. That is surely not irrelevant to the, the way in which this, this, uh, this crisis uh, matured during the summer of 1914. Then you have a figure like Hartwig, the, the Russian uh, envoy in Belgrade, a mujik of the old school, as he was called by one of his colleagues, a man with a luxuriant beard, so intimate with the Serbian prime minister that it was thought that, the, that, that, that it was believed that the two men had no secrets from each other uh, and was often felt that the Serbian prime minister was in some ways the mouthpiece for Hartwig. This is Hartwig, the, the, very, the very man who died during his meeting with um, his, his Austrian colleague, Count Giesel. He went to see him uh, during the July crisis to talk to him about, um, well, actually to talk to him about the about rumors circulating in Belgrade that, that Hartwig had been mocking the dead uh, Franz Ferdinand and saying he, he had it coming and so on. He went to see the, his Austrian colleague in order to assure him that this was not the case and just as they got talking, it was quite a friendly chat, um, Hartwig sort of teetered sideways with his, um, his, his cigarette still burning and slid off the couch onto the uh, carpet and was dead on the spot despite the application of ether, ice and various other um, substances. Um, he, he, he died there in the, in the Austrians' room. And of course, it was widely believed in Belgrade that he'd been poisoned by the Austrians. Or someone like Del Casse, for example, who has a second life. Um, 
in international politics in 1913 when he's sent to Moscow to, to be France's ambassador in Moscow. This is a man who was so, um, so passionately opposed to the Germans that when his train on the way to Moscow passed through, through Berlin, he insisted, he wanted to meet with the French ambassador, Jules Cambon, in Berlin, but he insisted that Jules Cambon come to meet him at the station and come into his railway carriage because he didn't want to place the sole of his shoe onto German soil. Um, and you have a figure like Paleologue, the French envoy in St. Petersburg, a man described by his colleagues um, variously as a fantasist, a marchand de canard, a teller of tall tales, an essentially, essentially literary and romantic figure um, who shared Poincaré's deep distrust and loathing of the Germans and um, was determined to, to make the Franco-Russian um, the Franco-Russian alliance into the keystone of French security policy and did so with a verve and uh, with a tendency towards exaggeration um, that, that was all his own. But there's also the French um, Prime Minister, Pashic, Nicolas Pashic, a fascinating man, extremely intelligent, sometimes described as the Serbian Bismarck, a man who was, a, was, a, was a, effectively a, um, a, an engineering graduate who'd, who'd trained, been trained at the University of Zurich, but who presented himself as a kind of peasant elder with long, luxuriant white beard. And in fact, he and Hartwig both had beautiful beards. And whenever they met, um, the, the, um, the, the members of the you know, staffers in the foreign ministry in Belgrade would say to their Russian colleagues, they would say, our beard is meeting with your beard. Um, so, you know, these... And, and Pashic is a very interesting man, a man who, though in effect, effectively a kind of technocrat, a, a trainee in engineering from Zurich, uh, who nevertheless presented himself as a, as a peasant elder who was known as Bayer, a term used for a, a respected older um, male figure, um, an extremely interesting person who'd somehow found a way to, to um, stay at the top of this mass movement, the radical party, a, a sect, essentially a peasant party of smallholders uh, in Serbian politics, and who followed a, a complex, um, and, but, but for the you know, a complex uh, line of uh, political line in the, during the crisis of 1914. And then we have Raymond Poincaré, the, the French um, president in 1913-14, um, previously the Prime Minister, um, an extraordinarily interesting man, Combon, um, Paul Combon, the, the, the French ambassador in, in, um, in London, described Poincaré as a kind of human filing cabinet. Uh, he said he has the stiffness, the unyieldingness of a man of law. Uh, he, he wants to numeroter everything. He wants to file away every fact. Um, he, he lacks the sort of suppleness required for, to, 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 for, international, for, for diplomacy. Um, and, of course, it's Poincaré who transformed the role of the presidency in France, which had been a relatively unimportant office, um, but which, came, which became a crucial center of power, at least in the, in the area of for, foreign policy making, um, once Poincaré ascended to that post. Finally, of course, like everybody else, I was looking for new sources. I can't say that uh, and this is the fourth and final point, I can't say that I found any smoking guns. I don't think anybody will. Um, but the, the personal papers of Spilaikovic in Belgrade were extremely interesting. British consular reports on the Balkans um, were, again, very, very informative, especially on the um, events in Albania during 1912 and 1913, which were, um, which were, and I say consular reports rather than diplomatic dispatches because there's an interesting tension in the British um, uh, dispatch traffic. The consuls, who were former Ottoman consuls, in other words, former consuls to the Ottoman Empire, they tended to send reports which were very critical of Serbian policy 
um, in, the, in the newly annexed areas, the areas taken by Serbia in 1912 and 13. So they reported in great detail on violence and uh, killings and, and so on in, in villages and so on um, in Macedonia and Albania. Um, but the, the, the British ambassador, or the British minister rather, the acting minister in Belgrade, Krakenthorpe, did what he could to suppress this material. He did not pass on these reports, and it was only because these consuls were double copying, were copying their reports to, um, to um, Istanbul, to Constantinople, that they made it back to London, where Krakenthorpe was eventually brought to book, and Edward Gray said, we really must get Krakenthorpe to tell us what's going on in the newly annexed areas and what, what's, happening in, uh, what's happening down there. This, this sounds like a very bad show. So that was very interesting. So were the, um, so were the, the memoirs of Basil von Strandmann, a, a staffer in the Russian embassy in, in, in Belgrade, um, and a relative of the, of the, of the historian, of, um, uh, the German historian, um, uh, um, Hartmut Pogger von Strandmann in, in Oxford. He's the one who put me onto his relative's memoirs. Um, and there are also the very interesting Belgian envoy reports. They, they were extremely interesting because, of course, Belgium was neutral. Um, and not, it's somewhat tragic when you think about the, the fate of the Belgians after the German invasion, the, the massacres and so on, but the Belgian envoy reports were extraordinarily fair-minded in their handling of the international scenery. In fact, in some ways, they were slightly pro-German. So they offer a very interesting sort of, from outside the structure of the two, of the two alliance blocks, they offer a very interesting um, sequence of observations. The, the Dutch reports, which I also went through, are, are unfortunately not nearly as well um, catalogued and, uh, don't, and many of them don't survive. But the Belgian ones are very, very useful. And once you do this, once you, you know, reframe the narrative in this way, uh, once you walk these paths, um, it becomes very difficult to return to the simplicities of the Fisher thesis, which dominated the, the literature of, on this subject um, between the 1970s and the 1990s. And in many ways, I think the Fisher thesis, or a sort of light version of the Fisher thesis, is still the sort of default position, um, at least in, in the Anglophone world. There's no doubting the appeal of the blame game, which delivers, a, I think, a, a certain pleasure when one can find a guilty party, um, even if all one's saying is that that, because nowadays the, the claims made about German responsibility are much are somewhat um, vitiated. So the claim is not that the Germans planned war in advance, except for John Ruhl, who, who, who takes that view. But, but most people would say it's more, that, more a question of who willed war, that the Germans willed war, whereas the other states merely accepted it, uh, and so on. Well, there's no doubting the appeal of the blame game. And I had a very interesting discussion with um, a wonderful American colleague, Isabel Hull, who wrote a, a wonderful book called um, Absolute Destruction about the sort of German military culture following um, looking at distinctive features of it right through from the um, pre-war colonial um, environment right through until uh, the Second World War. And... Um, she asked me what I was doing, and I said I was working on, on 1914. And she said, oh, uh, how awful, what, what's the point? It's all been done to death, um, like so many others. And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the blame game. And she said, oh, really? I think the blame game is the best game in town. <laughs> and she added, and the Germans are always to blame. Um, now, the problem with the blame game is, and I really want to stress this, the problem with the blame game is not that we might end up blaming the wrong party, because frankly I don't care whether we blame the Germans or the Russians, or I mean, you know, you have, there's an important recent um, utterance on this subject, Sean McMeekin's book, The Russian Origins of the First World War, which says there's only one couple party, that's the Russians. The, the problem isn't whether, whether we blame the wrong party. 
The problem is rather that the blame game involves assumption, the assumption that in all conflicts between one agent, one actor and another, one party is in the right and one party is in the wrong. But it, that's a, a, a ridiculous way to think about international relations. Um, if you think, for example, about the, um, about the interactions between Serbia and Austria-Hungary, well, nothing made the Serbs more furious than the idea that the Austrians were insisting on an independent Albanian state. The Austrians wanted to create an independent Albania. And it's often pointed out that you know, this was just a sort of um, a subterfuge to prevent the Serbs from gaining an, an, an Adriatic seaboard. But was it wrong to support independent Albania? I mean, in the, history has, as it were, vindicated the decision to support independent Albania in the sense that Albania still exists, unlike some other um, positive states in European history. Um, was it wrong to support an independent Albania? Was it more wrong than it was for the Serbs to seek the reunification or the unification of Serbdom? Was that wrong? Um, I don't think these questions really have answers, and I don't think they're uh, actually worth asking. And here I need to make an important point. This is not about exculpating the Germans. It wasn't that I was, I, I didn't go on a crusade. I know I, I may have the sort of Ritter, the, the, whatever it is, the office, officer's cross of the thingamajig. But, but the point is that, um, the, 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 I'm, you know, I'm not a hired gun. And um, <laughs> I really need to stress that. And I'm, I'm not interested in exculpating the Germans. It seems to me the Germans had a profoundly... Um, ill-judged and aggressive and stupid foreign policy. Um, it was structurally stupid, among other things. It really it was never coherent. It never added up to a clear... Um, there, there was never a sort of clear line of sight to an agreed objective. And if one asks questions like, for example, were there, were, were there exponents of preventive war in the German military leadership? Well, obviously the answer is yes. Dieter Hoffmann has counted, I've forgotten how many occasions, something like 35 occasions on which senior military personnel in Germany demand a preventive war as soon as possible. Um, were there brash expansionist voices on the German right? Yes, there were. Were there dark forces gathering in parts of the German political culture, that forces that would later inaugurate a catastrophic future? Yes, there were. But the relationship between these phenomena and the events that brought war about in 1914 are extremely oblique at the best. The Germans were not the only imperialists. They were not the only paranoids, the only, the only paranoiacs, as it were, uh, and they were certainly not the only power that was confident enough to feel that it could risk war and that it might even wish to risk war. You find these sorts of um, statements. You know, it's not only that we're ready for war, but we'd actually like a war. I'm, I'm sorry to say that one finds them in every one of the um, executives, one of the, every one of the European executives. And so coming to a close, I would just say in conclusion that this was not... The, the, the crisis of 1914 was not a James Bond movie. It's not a story which is going to end with a velvet-jacketed villain uh, with an iron prosthetic hand wrapped in a black leather glove, patting a cat, um, and plotting death and destruction for mankind. Nor was it an Agatha Christie murder mystery in which we're, we're eventually going to find the vicar standing over the prone body of Lady Carrington with a blood-stained blood swordfish under his arm. Uh, it's not that kind of story. It was an intensely interactive crisis. It's, it's, it was complex, and its complexity was part of the causality that brought this war about. It was not a fruit of the system as a bloodless construct, but of, the, of a gallery of actors who shared, uh, actors operating, of course, within structures, institutions, among other things, and, and within the structures of, of, of opinions and shared assumptions, actors who shared a fundamentally similar political culture. 
And it was to illuminate these aspects of the crisis of 1914 that I wrote this book. Thank you. Right. Um, well, we've got lots of time for questions. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions arising from that. That was an extremely good summary, if I can say so, of your own book. Yes. Thank you. Um, and I hope there are lots of students here who are taking notes. But one of, one of the things that you're left with at the end is, is the complexity, mm. that you're stressing the personalities, the different factors, the diffusion of responsibility mm. for, for this event. But, the question that one comes back to at the end, that seems to differ, that separate you on the one hand from the Fisher approach on the other, is that the Fisher went for a single, mm. central, crucial thing. He focused, I suppose, on the blank cheque. Yes. And behind that on the so-called War Council of December 1912 and forward to the September programme in September 1914. Now, at the end, and sort of in contrast to that, do you feel it, it's sufficient to say that everybody was responsible there were an enormous number of different causes which came together in a kind of conjuncture? Or do you think one should have some kind of reductionist approach and say there was actually something that was fundamentally important that explained the outbreak of war at that particular time in that particular way? Mm. Well, no, I think in in the end I I do want to resist the reductionist approach. Um, I mean, if we call it reductionist, we're already resisting it, (laughs) I, I suppose. Um, I do want to resist the reductionist approach. I mean, it seems to me you can... Because, because, and the reason is, um, it's more or less along the lines that you were just intimating, that, that one can identify so many decisions that, without, that, that is, were contributed to the, the outbreak of this war. And each, but each time one tries to overload the causality and say, well, this is the key reason, that, 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 that then you find that, um, for example, if you take um, you know, the... Um, the blank check. I mean, you know, the, does everybody know what the blank check is? You know, the blank check is this uh, assurance of support by the Germans to Austria, uh, in, uh, offered on the fifth of July, fifth and sixth of July, in fact, um, which Fischer, to which Fisher attached enormous um, significance. Does that, as it were, is is that where we find the smoking gun? Well, I think the answer is no, because when the assurance was made on the fifth and sixth of July, um, everything we know about German thinking and German sort of threat analysis at that point suggests that the Germans believed that the likelihood of a Russian um, intervention on behalf of Serbia was very, very low. They, and we know this from, um, among other things, from two diaries which surfaced in the 1990s, um, clearly not written for publication, um, but written by contemporaries who were present at the, at the meetings in which the, um, the, the, the assurance of support was discussed. Um, there was the diaries of Plessen and Blunker, and both of them um, say... Um, we all agreed, everybody in the room agreed, that the Russians, though friends of the Serbs, are unlikely to intervene. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how large was the risk? How large were the Germans, um, how, how large was it reasonable for the Germans to think the risk was? And can we see there, in, in that particular isolated moment, um, you know, a cause of the war? Well, of course, it, it wasn't helpful. The Germans, by, by issuing this promise of support to Austria, they helped, contributed in their way to the escalation of the crisis. But the Russians had also contributed to the escalation of the crisis um, by, among other things, by uh, constantly assuring the Serbs that Russia would, would stand by Serbia, but that Serbia would have to be, uh, you know, there's a very interesting meeting, for example, which takes place between the Serbian Prime Minister and the Tsar in January 1914, where Pasic says, 
you know, what will, uh, you know, uh, what happens if we wind up in, you know, getting into trouble with Vienna? And the Tsar says, well, Austria, Russia will not leave you in the lurch. We will be there for you. We will be there to support you. But it must be Austria that provokes, Austria that attacks. You can't attack Austria. You have to wait for Austria to attack you. Um, then you have in ni- late 1913 a letter from Sazonov to, pa- well, effectively to Pashich. It's uh, Sazonov to Hartwig, and Hartwig is asked to show this to Pashich, in which Sazonov says, tell Mr. Pashich that Russia will never abandon Serbia uh, and that, the, that Serbia should concentrate its energies not on Macedonia, which is going to lead to endless Balkan quarrels with the Bulgarians, but it should concentrate its energies on Bosnia-Herzegovina, those Serbian lands inside Austria-Hungary, because the, 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 the writing is on the wall for this, for this um, you know, moribund construct of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's on its way out. Time is on the side of Serbia and working against Serbia's enemies. So, I mean, uh, th- there are so many different causes of this kind, so many ways in which people, as it were, invested in escalation rather than um, in the opposite, whatever the opposite of escalation is, um, that uh, de-escalation, that I think, you know, the reductionist approach just simply doesn't hold water. And everywhere you look, you find that if you put too much pressure on one point, then the question arises, you know, what, what happens then to prior um, points in the, se- in the causal sequence? Okay, v- very good. Um, I'd like to, yes, question here, first of all. Yes, gentleman here. Oh, you mentioned this diplomat who didn't want to touch German stuff. Are you talking about a Russian diplomat or a French diplomat? I... It's, it's Del Cassi, the, the French um, ambassador on his way to St. Petersburg. He didn't want to touch German stuff. He was so hostile to Germany, was he? Yes, he said to Combon, you must come and see me in my carriage. I refuse to... T- I, refuse, I don't want to put my, my shoe onto the German railway platform. Okay. Hmm. Right, I can see... Okay, there's... <laughs> right, I can see four hands. And what I'm going to do is to collect three questions here and then move over to that side. So, moving from the back forward. Can, yes? Three questions. Can you make the questions quite short, yes. please, so everybody has a chance? As somebody who had tutorials with uh, Professor Hinsley, <laughs> I'm uh, <coughs> uh, immensely proud of his, his uh, successor. Uh, isn't one of the problems uh, that perhaps you address it in the book, which I look forward to reading, that... Uh, <coughs> The war that they wanted was not the war that they got. The, uh, de- the uh, vision or view of what a war was going to be in July was totally different from the war that mm. materialized. So there are two separate questions. Why did they start the war? And then why did the war turn out to be a quite different war from the one they wanted? Yes, that's very... Right, so can I yeah, sorry, yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a gentleman here. Yes, okay, two, two here. Yes, and then one. Yep. Can you ask the question? Yes, uh, a couple of points occur to me. Is um, one is total absence of security in on 28th of June 1914. Here we have an unpopular person in an open-top car, no security whatsoever, attempted assassination in the morning, and um, things carry on as if nothing had happened. There seems to have been total incompetence on, 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 you know, by the Austro-Hungarian authorities. And the other point is, what you've said this evening, is what you're, are you really saying this was one gigantic cock-up? It's, it's like one of these programs on aircraft crashes. And, you know, you see the pilot 
pilot error, ignores red lights flashing all over the place, he makes wrong judgments, this, that and the other, and it all ends up in catastrophe that nobody intended. But maybe people did intend, I mean, von Herzendorf, the Austrian um, general, I think recommended a, a preventative war on something like 23 occasions. Mm. And finally, what's your view of Albertini's book, written many years ago, but um, I'm told has still has, you know, is it, def it one of the great histories on the f origins of the First World War? Mm. Are you taking note, Chris? I, I am, yes. So, that gentleman here, then, then we must give you a chance to respond. Um, my, my question really is, is that the, the European powers all appeared to behave like bully boys. Why did they seriously think that nobody would stand up to them? Because it does appear that they all were heavy-handed. They all wanted to grab. But who were they grabbing off? Others. So it was always inevitable that they were going to stand up at some point, even if it wasn't in 1914. Mm. I mean, Russia was grabbing Ottoman Empire, and they also wanted the German... Uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, didn't they? Um, and Britain was interested in the trade routes that Germany had. So everybody was grab, grab, grab. It was always inevitable, surely, that a conflict would occur based on their behavior. Let alone the personalities you were talking about, which just adds fuel to the fire, really. Mm. So you've got the, the, the bully boy approach there, that everybody was aggressive and grabbing against each other. There was the distinction between the kind of war that was expected and the kind of war that actually happened. Mm. Um, there was a question about Konrad von Herzendorf, and surely there were people here who did want war, and the whole thing wasn't some kind of accident. There was the lack of security precautions uh, in June 1914. <laughs> I think there was one other point, but, yeah, but I think there's, a, there's a mixture here of accident and design, the different approaches. Yes, absolutely. Well, very interesting questions. Um, no, they didn't get the war that they wanted. I mean, a, a German colleague of mine said, you know, if you could have put these people down and, and just parachuted them into the Somme um, and shown them what was going to happen, and once they'd got over their nervous breakdowns and, you know, their post-traumatic stress and so on, um, they might well have uh, thought again. Um, I hope that that's true. But um, in any case, no, they didn't get the war they wanted. The war that actually happened between 19 and 14 was a war that no one was, had been able to imagine. I mean, it exceeded the imaginative capacity of any humans alive. Um, there are... I mean, there's been a, some discussion of um, whether people understood and to what extent people understood how bad the war would be. It used to be thought, almost universally believed, that, that people thought it would be a short war, that the troops would be home by Christmas and all this kind of thing. Then Stieg Förster showed that actually um, there are voices in many of the military establishments in Europe that are warning of something quite different. And even within Schlieffen's staff, when he drew up the Schlieffen plan, which was supposed to be this lightning sweep across the north of France, even within his staff, there are people who were saying, you know, this isn't going to be a lightning sweep. It's going to be, a, I think the expression is, a tedious, bloody crawling, you know, step by step. And there's the, the famous, well, he wasn't particularly, he should have been more famous, but the SPD, the social democratic school teacher, whose name is, I think, Lumsus or Lumsus? Uh, it'll come back to me, I think that's right, uh, who writes a description called, it's called Das Menschenschlachthaus, the, the human slaughterhouse, in which he describes the next, the next war and describes exactly the scenes that we, we know um, in advance. He describes these scenes, you know, broken bodies as far as the eye can see, um, trenches and so on. And there are books like Die Zahl im Krieg, produced by uh, the Austrian general staff, which calculate you know, the effect of stationary machine guns on large numbers of advancing infantrymen and conclude that there are going to be casualty lists, casualty lists of a kind one has never seen. So um, there's, there's, there are plenty of indications that this war is going to be special. Um, but nonetheless, I think that 
the, the way one can make sense both of the old view, which, for which there's also a lot of evidence, um, this sort of idea that you know, it'll all be over fairly swiftly um, if, we, if we do things right. Um, what actually happened was that the fear that the war would be long and the hope that it would be short, um, these two things kind of held each other in suspension. So that, um, in a sense, and I think there's a difference there, a difference there from the situation after 1945 when people really understood what nuclear war would mean and that the, the picture of those, those, those mushroom clouds over Nagasaki and Hiroshima and um, the, the picture of human beings uh, and so on, the, these, the, these images entered the nightmares of normal citizens, of, usual, of ordinary citizens like us. And um, that was not the case in 1914, I don't think. There was an awareness of the, the possibility of a, of a massive carnage, but it didn't really enter into the decision-making culture. <coughs> Your point about the 28th of June is absolutely right. Um, in fact, people were so shocked by the, the, poor, um, the, the poor security precautions um, you know, put in place by Potiorek, the, the London chef of, of um, Bosnia-Herzegovina, that in Hungary it was thought that, you know, that this had all been done by the Austrians on purpose, that they were trying to get rid of this guy. Um, I mean, you know, Hungary at that time was um, a sort of, a, how they put it, a, a very clement environment for uh, conspiracy theory. Um, yes, that's very, that's very striking, but I think incompetence was not, it was nothing unusual um, in Austria-Hungary. I mean, um, incompetence of that kind. And one has to you know, remember that um, the, the previous couple of days had gone very smoothly. They'd met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Serb, Serb, Serbs and Croats. Um, during, they'd, for example, a couple of days before they went to Sarajevo, they'd, they'd gone on a little shopping trip um, to the, to the, uh, through Iligia, for example, this, uh, this town not far from Sarajevo, where they'd simply walked among the people. No one had tried to kill them. And there's you know, a lot of talk about how everywhere we saw, Sophie Hotek says, you know, everywhere we went, we saw nothing but smiling faces uh, and so on. So I think you know, this, this can happen, that people develop a, a, a confidence in their relationship with um, the public that is, is not justified. Um, there is an extraordinary moment after Chabinovich had thrown his bomb and they're, they're heading there at the, at the city hall and um, the decision is being made, you know, what should we do now? Should we simply leave the, the city immediately? Um, should we provide some kind of, you know, um, stronger security support and so on? And at this point, um, Franz Ferdinand turned to, uh, Potiorek rather, turned to the rest of the entourage and said, what, do you think Sarajevo is full of assassins? Uh, well, <laughs> That was a rhetorical question. In fact, in fact the, answer, the answer was yes. Uh, on, that, on that particular day, it, it was fairly full of assassins. Yes, yeah, so it was, in, it was incompetence. But on the other hand, um, it, it's, not, it's not every day that seven, seven young um, assassins um, you know, formed up in Sarajevo to carry out a task like this one. Um, as for the question of did they intend it, I think that, yes, there are, there are um, people who intend war, um, Hutzendorf is a famous example. I mean, Hutzendorf is like you know those dolls that one used to have, which or one sister used to have, where you pull out, a, pull the string in the back, and they say, you know, I love you, or something like that. Well, Hutzendorf was always he, what he always said was, you know, we need a war, right? So he would propose um, a war in Montenegro, a war in Italy, which was interesting because Italy was supposedly um, the ally of Austria-Hungary. Um, <laughs> he, he proposed wars on Serbia on numerous occasions. Um, I mean, preventive war was his thing. He, he, if you told him you had corns on your feet, he would have you know, prescribed a preventive war. So the point is that, yes, there are people like that. 
Um, but we find them elsewhere as well. I mean, we find the, in the, 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 the big state conferences in, um, for example, in January 19, big state conference in January 1914, where um, they discuss whether Russia is ready for a war with Germany. Um, the, the conference, the, the, the um, Participants are told by the Minister of War that uh, Russia is ready for war with Germany, even if it were just to be a one-to-one war between Russia and Germany. Russia is ready for war and has very good chances of winning. Um, and you have people like, for example, Castelnau, the uh, chief of the French general staff, or various other French military figures um, announcing that France um, is ready for war and indeed that France would like a war. And, or Alexandre Millerand, the, the French Minister of War, telling the Russians, you know, why don't you get stuck in? This is in 19, uh, end of 1912, beginning of 1913. The French are telling the Russians, why are you sitting back on your hands um, instead of intervening um, to, to, you know, to, to prevent the Austrians from taking advantage of, of the, the, the conflict unfolding in the Balkans? So, <coughs> and that kind of addresses the, the bully boy question as well. Uh, you, you do have a... Uh, a preference right across Europe um, for conflictual solutions rather than for um, non-conflictual ones. And indeed, the, the whole structure by which arbitration could take place is simply not there. I mean, the, not, it's not only because, you know, the, the structures we might now have in place are not yet around. It's also because the, 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 the Europe of 1913-14 is so deeply divided that people can't even... There's not, not even a unified narrative of what, what has happened in, at Sarajevo, for example. And one thing that interested me a lot was to compare the narratives of the, of the assassination and its background that are generated in Germany and Austria with the narratives generated by the Russians and the French, for example. What the Russians and the French say, right from the very beginning, they say, well, clearly Serbia has nothing to do with this assassination. Right, they, they simply ignore all the evidence that, that these people were trained in Belgrade, that they received um, guns and bombs um, of Serbian make uh, from Serbs and so on. Um, and they say it has nothing to do with Belgrade. This is um, entirely a domestic Austrian affair. If they're going to exploit this to take action against Serbia, that's because they want a war uh, and so on. So in other words, you have a sundering of narratives and a sundering of perception so that people don't even agree what the problem is that they're trying to solve let alone how to solve it. And in an environment like that, you know, four-power conferences or the concert of Europe um, become meaningless constructs. Um, they, can no longer, they no longer have any purchase. And that, of course, is a very dangerous, um, a dangerous situation where you have this sort of bully boy culture that you referred to. Excellent. Okay, now what's happening is I saw three more hands going up. <coughs> but I, I think the hands were over first on this side. Right. So I'm going to collect some from this side of the room. First of all, gentlemen in the front row... Then I'll, then I'll move it further back. Can you ask your question first of all? Oh, yes. Uh, thank you, Professor Clark. My question is, as what the outbreak of the war in 1914 tells us about strategy and the relevance of strategy in formulating and conduct the right policy? Besides, there are people out there who believe there is a logic of strategy as much as there is a logic of mass, and what you have proved us here is that like now the thing that happened in 1914 is a result of coherent, co-blooded, calculated strategy. It's like, does that mean that, that kind, this kind of grand strategy fantasy is not helpful and detrimental or maybe even dangerous 
to the conduct of the policy. And my second question is, is like there's been an awful lot of comparison being made about the beginning of this century to the last one. And I have read a book on Sleepwalker, and to be honest, like, that leaves me a rather depre- depressing picture. Do you think like, the leaders of nations are bounded to be sleepwalkers that will lead these own people into something that they never thought about, they don't know what it is, and they couldn't know? Okay. Thank you very much. I think two questions at the back, two gentlemen next to each other there. Yeah, and then then we'll let Chris have a chance to respond. Thank you. I'd like to um, uh, ask a question about Britain, because ultimately it was Britain's participation in the war that was decisive for the defeat of of the uh, uh, central powers. To what extent, um, from your research, did you discover that the British were uh, very concerned about the possibility that Germany might defeat Russia and establish a kind of Eurasian bloc of the kind that was uh, anticipated by Mackinder. Mm. Yeah, and, and that, yes, the person next to you. Um, well, mine is uh, a comment. You said about uh, the uh, blank check and how uh, Germany, uh, you know, played it. Well, surely the important part of the uh, blank check is how it was received by Austria-Hungary, where they said. Ah, we've been given a blank cheque. The only qualification is that we must spend it quickly. And second point is that uh, you said about uh, there's no way that uh, you, know, you could resolve these things. One of the ways that they would have, could have resolved them is usually after a thing like this, when you've got a funeral, everyone's invited to the funeral, and you can, uh, uh, the heads uh, can get together. Uh, there, was no, or there was a funeral, but no one was invited to the funeral of... Um, No, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no one was invited because of uh, the fear of terrorism. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to, in a minute I'm going to collect some more questions here because people have been waiting here patiently. Then I'll go back to that side. But let, let's deal with that block of questions first, Chris. Okay. Um, well, I must say your, the, the first question about the, the place of grand strategy in policymaking is re- strikes me as a really important one, but I don't think I have a very good answer to it. I mean... Um, the point where I think um, grand strategy most obviously informs or has been taken to inform policy is, is the Schlieffen Plan, where it's thought that the Schlieffen Plan committed Germany to, or it's often argued in any case, the Schlieffen Plan committed Germany to a very um, proactive um, position in the West, you know, uh, because it was going to have to engage its Western adversary before it engaged the Eastern one, the Western one having the more important forces. Um, I myself never, I've never found that argument very um, persuasive, mainly because the, it seems to me the Germans had, it's not so much that that strategy was regarded by the Germans and also accepted by virtually everybody else as in, in, in expressing, as it were, the, the logic of Germany's position. I mean, the, something like the Schlieffen Plan had already been posited, even uh, by French military intelligence, even before they had um, evidence, which they then ultimately did have, to suggest that this was indeed how the Germans would proceed. So in other words, it's hard to imagine, given the robust quality of the Russo-French, um, the Franco-Russian alliance, how else the Germans would have um, responded to how, how, what other contingency plans they might have had in place. They had had, you know, the so-called Eastern Campaign, campaign Plan, which was a, a plan about waging war in the East only. But that was shelved in 1913 um, for precisely the reason that, that the German um, general staff took the view that it was inconceivable 
that uh, Germany would fight a war with Russia without having to engage France um, at the same time. And were, I'm sure they were right about that. As for the, the question of contemporary resonances, I think there are many. And I, I think in many ways the, that, that's what's, that, that, that is what depre- is very depressing about this, um, this story. So, I mean, I share your, your sense that it is a, a very dark picture. Um, and what, what exactly does it suggest to us? Well, it suggests to me that, you know, among other things, we haven't necessarily got very much more intelligence as, as a species in de- dealing with um, political conflicts. I'm not sure. It, it is amazing how um, many of the similar narratives one sees, for example, in the, uh, when people talk about the rise of China. Um, you know, it, it, one's often remembered of the kind of, uh, reminded of the kind of language that was used about the rise of Germany. Um, one would like to think that better narratives um, existed or better, that, that we had a better political culture and that we were better able to deal with the emergence of a new player in the sort of world power club uh, than we were then. And I, and I, I think possibly we are slightly better, but not nearly as, better as, much, as, as much better as we should be. Um, <coughs> I think that the, the current euro crisis, I mean, as I was finishing the book, the euro crisis broke out, and um, I was struck by how, among other things, how, you know, it seemed that although everybody, every player in this crisis agreed that there was a, a catastrophic potential outcome, that was the sort of meltdown of the eurozone. Um, nevertheless, it was as if people, rather than, rather than as it were, um, disciplining the different players into some kind of collaborative, um, consensual approach to the problem, it actually had the opposite effect, that people wielded the, the threat of catastrophe as uh, in support of their own particular objectives. And I think something similar was happening in 1914. The people recognized the possibility of a conflagration. They talk about it all the time. You know, a European war would be a complete disaster. But what they're often doing is using the threat of a European war um, in order to, to further their own objectives. As to the question of um, what Britain hopes to achieve by entering into the war, well, it's an extremely complex issue um, in which, you know, among other things, the the very vexed question of the place of Belgium and all of these calculations um, has to be included. But um, you made the interesting suggestion that Germany was concerned about the, that um, Britain was concerned about the the, future in which Germany had defeated Russia. That is true, I think. uh, And I think that, in a way, um, where I would fault um, Sir Edward Grey's policy is in, is in um, having bought into the Balkan inception scenario so early and having responded so passively to the um, crisis in its early phases. I think, on the other hand, um, it's more difficult to fault his decision once the war was clearly um, approaching. It's more difficult to fault his decision to intervene, to, take, to, 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 to join on one side and to join on the side of the Entente because uh, I think he was right, and this is the, he makes this point in his speech to the House of Commons on the 3rd of August. Um, he says, you know, we just have to imagine what the world will look like after a war in which Britain has not taken part. Either Germany will win or the Entente will win. If the Entente wins, then we'll be completely out in the cold. North India will be exposed to the Russians. They'll never trust us again, and it will be a very lonely and very frosty world. If, on the other hand, Germany wins, it will wield a kind of hegemony on the continent, like the Napoleonic blockade, and that is an equally unattractive scenario. So he said, either way, we have to intervene. Um, I hope that answers your question. I mean, it seems to me that what's interesting about that argument that Graham made is that people sometimes see a tension between continentalist and blue-water arguments in British foreign policy. 
you know, blue water arguments being water, uh, arguments about empire and, you know, far-flung peripheries and so on, and continentalist ones being about balancing, you know, the German hegemony. And it seems to me that both arguments converged uh, in support of the same policy in August 1914. As for the blank check and how it was received by Austria-Hungary, well, one idea that one has to clear out of the way is, is an argument that was, has often been made, which is that the Austro-Hungarians, the Austrians were um, undecided what they were going to do <coughs> until, the Germans thought they, until the Germans told them they'd support them. That is not the case. The Austrians had absolutely decided on a military démarche vis-à-vis Belgrade if they didn't secure compliance through their automatum, with their automatum. Um, so they'd made up their minds already about that. And um, then they, they got, of course, the assurance from Germany. And what you rightly pointed out, um, the question then was how fast do you cash the blank check? And that's where the problems began. Because although Konrad von Hutzendorf had, as usual, said we should wage war, immediately smash them, don't even declare war, go and do this. And the, he was then um, called to order and asked to, to, to uh, explain how Austria would do that. And uh, he revealed that actually Austria couldn't simply go to war immediately. Um, too many troops were on harvest leave. Um, it was going to take several weeks before that could be sorted out. Um, and so that agonizing, you know, drawn-out phase of the crisis when Austria tries to, um, through a kind of stealth policy, to prevent anybody from knowing what it's planning to do, and Serbia disappears from the Austrian press as a theme, um, and there's a kind of weird lull in the middle of the July crisis as the Austrians tried to sort themselves out. And, of course, from Germany and from Berlin are coming, you know, telegrams, what is going on, when are you guys going to do something, um, please keep us informed. Um, if you leave this any longer, um, the, the outrage caused by the assassinations will have dissipated, and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, we're supposed to finish at 8 o'clock. <coughs> there are still lots of questions. Um, Stuart, can we go on beyond 10 past 8, as far as you know? Don't know. No. All right. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm very sorry, but can, can you stay for a few minutes? After of course, yeah, yeah of course. absolutely. So, look, I think I am going to have to stop it, partly because a lot of the questions come from members of the department who are going to have a chance to ask them afterwards with dinner with the speaker. But he, he will be, you, you can stay for a few minutes. Absolutely. You can, ask a chance, you, can, you can have a chance to put questions to Chris Clark after that. I think what we've had, I mean, it's excellent to see such a huge turnout, very attentive audience, lots of questions, great occasion. Do buy the book. Yes, I hope it's encouraging you to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thank you very much indeed, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming.